This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. To listen to the extended version of this episode, support us on patreon.com slash for the wild. Hello and welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Dr. Bayo Okomalafe. We're faced with an invitation for new and, and powerfully potent frameworks that might invite us to shapeshift. What's called into question here is our rectilinear posture, is how our bodies are embodied is how our paradigms have cuddled us and kept us safe. And we've been invited to story new ideas, to story new tensions, to libate those vexed grounds and to ask new questions about what it means to be alive now. Bio Komalafe, PhD, rooted with the Yoruba people in a more than human world, is the father of Alethea and Kaya, the grateful life partner to EJ, son and brother, a widely celebrated international speaker, posthumanist thinker, poet, teacher, public intellectual, essayist, and author of two books, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home, North Atlantic Books, and We Will Tell Our Own Story, The Lions of Africa Speak. Bio Komalafe is the founder of the Emergence Network and host of the post-activist course festival event, We Will Dance with Mountains. He currently lectures at Pacifica Graduate Institute, California. He sits on the board of many organizations, including Science and Non-Duality and Ancient Futures. In July 2022, Dr. Komalafe was appointed the inaugural Global Senior Fellow of University of California's Berkeley Othering and Belonging Institute. He has also been appointed Fellow of the New Institute in Hamburg, Germany, and visiting critic in residence for the Otis College of Art and Design in Los Angeles. He is the recipient of the New Thought Leadership Award 2021 and the Excellence in Ethnocultural Psychotherapy Award by the African Mental Health Summit in 2022. Oh, Bio, I'm so happy to have this time with you. I know I'm in for a wild ride. (laughs) So thanks for being here and sharing with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me again. There's so many ways to start off and so much we could untangle and retangle together. I want to start with diving into exploring crisis and narratives around crisis because they seem to consume the modern mind and perhaps even freeze us within this crisis mode. I'm wondering, might the idea that we are in crisis, be getting in the way of making meaningful change. Mm. Thank you for that, Yana. I think there is a very powerful, at least for me, a powerful sense in which one might say, one might theorize that moral fields, ethical landscapes, what they do is they produce crises, they produce problems, that to be embodied is to have excluded something, (laughs) right? Is to have lost something in some sense. I'm speaking about what a Karen Barad might think of as a complementarity. Like if you materialize with a machine, light as particulate, as a bunch of particles, then you've lost 
you've constitutionally excluded the phenomenon of light as wave. And if you produce light as wave, then you exclude light as particle. So that, you know, in a sense, to live, to breathe is to exclude something. Something is lost, in a sense, if you will. Modernity is the production of the individual. It's the production of the separate self. Speculate that its most feverish production, its desire is to encircle, reinforce, and nourish the idea of the citizen, the citizen subject, as a thing unto itself, as an essential fundamental thing. What that leaves out is the possibility, the performance of a world, not just a theoretical abstraction, but the performance of a world and our relations with it, a world that is alive and intelligent and agential and active and thoughtful and risky and more than human. I think the crises that we are producing as a civilization is embedded in, in the tensions of modern, of modernity. It's how we're making do with being alive. It's, it's virtually stitched into the fabric of our everyday. So in a sense, you might say that even if we found a solution to a problem like a wicked problem, like say climate chaos, right? Even if we found a solution, this particular nature culture that we are co-performing will find some way to um, reinvent the challenge, right? We will secrete this problem in a different way. We'll find another way to create or touch the other tensions that inhabit the idea that we are separate from the world. So, the solutions are not enough because solutions are just as much part and parcel of the economy of intelligibility of modernity. I know that's an unwieldy statement, but there you go. Solutions are part of how problems are reinforced. So what we need then is not just solutions and not to dismiss precious work around the wicked problem of climate chaos. What we need is more than just solutions. What we need is some kind of an ontological mutiny, I like to say, a break away from the sensorial monoculture that leaves us intact as citizen subjects. Mm -hmm. I love exploring this because I find myself frustrated, even a bit angry exhausted, dismissive of solutions that are popping up all over the place in regards to climate change. So I do want to tease out a bit more of how does one start to embody something other than the formula that's given to us to work through this crisis? I think we would need formulas that are not formulaic, if that makes sense. One wouldn't want to drop into a trap of repeatability. The world is too promiscuous for final answers, right? And yet, having said that, we are a cartographical species. We would need to find our way and we would need patterns we would need abstractions. We would need theories. We would need to speak with each other. We would need to keep silent. You know, we would need to fall apart together. In my sense of things, given that our bodies are not isolated Newtonian Cartesian machines, right? Given that the story of the individual is heavily burdened, stressed, and haunted by the idea that we've never really been individuals, per se. We are concretizations of multiple influences, of agencies crisscrossing each other. We are crossroads. So there isn't some getting it all together. Even our view of politics as enshrined in the voter, you know, or the 
idea that if only we can get people to get their act together, then, you know, by giving them more and more data about what's wrong, you know, those practices seem to leave out the idea that individuals are not, you know, they're not atomic. It's not a question of ignorance here. Our politics has to be a lot more generous than an information spilling machine, right? It has to be a lot more practical than going to the voting booth. It has to be a lot more generous and hospitable and spatial. The aesthetic of it must go beyond speaking truth to power. And my sense of things is that it begins with loss. Loss is the most prolific and most fervent creation of the universe. The universe is too, you can say the constant thing in the universe of change that it produces is movement, it's, is loss. Bodies spill into these frames, get composted, paradigms enjoy demise, you know, our cells fall to the ground, we spill into dust so that we are murmurations of becoming. I had a dream recently and I came out of the dream with a sentence. I don't want to bore you with the other details of the dream, but I remember before I went to sleep, I had a question that I posed to whatever forces, whatever parliaments of hands and hearts and heads and limbs are responsible for stitching dreams together. I said, help me ask new questions, help me gain new insights. Let's have a conversation. And I'm not exactly sure who I was intending that communication for, but I said it anyway. And I went to sleep and then caught right to the part where I woke up and I heard distinctly in my mind the formulation of a sentence. And it was in the geometry of the exquisite. Loss is important. Something like that, you know, the, or yes, this is it. This is exactly what it said. In the geometry of the exquisite, the lines never connect, right? And my interpretation of that was that loss, you know, is what I'm saying about loss now. The idea that everything is only partial, that politics is partial, that we can only think of a partial response to a world that can never be revealed, so to speak, or can never show up fully, seems to be the, the insight in that sentence. And so back to my configuration of things, it's this. I think it begins with loss. I think it begins with disability. That if we take it for granted that our bodies are landscape-making assemblages, then it's possible for us to get stuck in that landscaping ritual. It's possible for ants to go around in a pheromonic trance and die in exhaustion, believing that they're making progress, right? So the thing to look out for are breaks. Breaks are signified or figured um, in, you know, the spaces or the sites, the, the crippled places, the what some scholars would call cripistemology, ways of knowing that is not that is not yet trapped in ableist circles of knowing, right? So I think of disability as a site of excess, as a site of possibility, especially a politics of the exquisite, of the transformational, of the transversal, as a surrounding of that mark, of that break, of that crack in the surface, a surrounding, a sitting with, a sharing with, right? So just to cut the spiel shorter than usual, I would say that I think it begins with ornamenting and libating cracks. It begins with that. And somehow I sense that when we do that long enough, when we share new cartographical possibilities instigated by cracks, then new directions are rendered possible, are made available. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that theme throughout your work. And I also want to recognize, you know, for 
probably most of us listening, that the construction of narratives around climate change are often distinctly Western and even specifically of a U.S.-based context. I'm thinking about your experience living in India and how might we turn to other ways of understanding what is called climate change outside of the dominant Western, even U.S. narrative? Climate change, whatever term, you know, it's, it's often difficult to to even choose what term one would adopt what day of the week. Um, but, but climate change is white stability. It's it's not just weather patterns gone all you know it's 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 not just errancy it's you know this is a relational phenomenon this is let me put it this way that the inrush of an ocean wave the crashing of a wave on the shore on perhaps on a sandcastle that one has built, is a rather different phenomenon from an ocean wave crashing on a phallic steel tower, right? To, in the former image, you know, sandcastles sand are meant to be composted. <laughs> They're meant to fade away. Uh, part of the joy of building it is to see it crumble. But to a steel tower and its performances of permanence, anything that comes from without is a possible threat. And yet the ocean waves are the same. Without trying to diminish the escalating um, consequences of industrial activity, what I want to stress here is climate changes, in the words of Frederick Apfel Marglin, Climate change is eco-metaphysically true. It is true and effectual within an assemblage, within a particular way of noticing and seeing the world, right? Which is white stability. The reason why climate change is spreading fast is because whiteness is globally relevant. It's escalating as well. And so... We are faced with a crisis, not just of weather patterns. We're faced with a deeper onto-epistemological crisis. By onto-epistemological, I mean a crisis of becoming, a crisis of being. What does it mean to be human? How do we know things? What does our knowing enact? What worlds die as a result of our rituals of coming to know the world? Right. All of these are called into question as storms dance outside of our windows and sometimes through our, our buildings. We are, we are being invited to ask questions about how we build our lives, how we build the city. Everything is called into question here, right? So the Anthropocene is, you know, that's often articulated as this global narrative, this planetary cautionary tale warning everyone to have their hands on deck or we might lose our lives. Of course, what that leaves out is that the world is uneven, not just uneven in its in in terms of how we are producing the conditions for this crisis, um, not just uneven in how this crisis is, you know, blowing like smoke across the, the, the planet but also uneven in how we see it. And so you're right there. And, you know, we're, we're faced with more than just um, a simple request for techno-bureaucratic responses. We're faced with an invitation for new and powerfully potent frameworks that might invite us to shapeshift, right? What's called into question here is our rectilinear posture, is how our bodies are embodied, is how um, our paradigms have coddled us and kept us safe. Now that safety, you know, has had its endorsement withdrawn by the planet, so to speak. And we've been invited to story new ideas, 
to storing new tensions, to libate those vexed grounds and to ask new questions about what it means to be alive now. The Yoruba people have wonderful, I live in India, but I'm, I, you know, I'm deeply in touch with the Yoruba lessons and the Yoruba stories that have transmuted into black scholarship and Afro-diasporic spiritualities and slave narratives and how they're inviting us to behave in the midst of capture. How they're inviting us to behave when a god, a wild god, comes visiting. And I think that's the story that I tell around the world, especially to climate scientists, especially those who write IPCC reports and are not exactly sure how to frame hope or hopelessness in a time when the nation-state paradigm doesn't seem able to rise to the challenge. I think a descending is more appropriate as a responsible thing to do now. how to describe it, but I really felt attached to the words you were speaking. And I do see this clinging that whiteness brings, even when I think about building materials, you know, the metaphor of the sandcastle really sparked in me the poisons we use here, especially in the United States, to keep our buildings from rotting, the formaldehyde in our bodies to keep our bodies from rotting. We don't want to let go. And the desperation to cling shifts the whole way we experience the world and, of course, climate change and change in general. And I want to ask about how we nurture through the rupture in welcoming to the wandering, winding way of the wound. For science and non-duality, you discuss just how difficult it is to live with rupture, how difficult it is to have your world upended. I'm wondering, how do we provide care and nurturing through ruptures so that we can bear them and embrace shifts rather than just running back to the concrete and not allowing the rupture to grow and change us? Wonderful. Recently at the University of Massachusetts, I speaking with architects and urban planners. I said blackness is this architecture, or rather blackness is the end of architecture. <laughs> and I had to quickly add that it's all right, though, you can relax because their bodies immediately became stiff. And I needed to explain what I meant by blackness as the end of architecture. Architects hate decay. Right. The pride of an architect is to see one's art thriving, is to see it last long, right? Is to have the integrity of the building or the structure praised, you know, for decades to come. And so they try to build in a way that protects the integrity of the structure so it doesn't decay. In a sense, architecture is a conversation with loss. It's a conversation with decay and with flailing edges, right? It's an ongoing conversation about what do we give up and what do we let live or stay or abide permanently if we can manage that prospect. And architecture is not just building. Architecture is how 
experience is designed. Think about the architecture of cities. Think about what certain buildings want us to feel. Right, <laughs> like what kind of feeling is evoked when you see the White House? What does it arouse? What does a mountain arouse? What does what does the White House arouse? What does the Pentagon arouse? What does the Statue of Liberty arouse? So uh, we don't just we're not just little dots moving through Euclidean empty spaces. We are. Arousals. We are meeting concatenations of arousals, right? We're we're subjects of unspeakable arousals, <laughs> erotic crossroads. And architecture is is part of that, partially. You know, it co-produces these experiences, right? We might not understand why we feel happy all of a sudden when we're um, surrounded by certain furniture, but there is uh, some some support. I don't want to say evidence. It seems more anecdotal at this point. Um, But there is some compelling narrative that suggests that our feelings, our capacity to respond, which is affect, uh, you know, is is not domiciled in our bodies. It is a it's a question of ecological transferences. It you know it's a matter of atmospheric you know, exchanges. So we are not separate from architecture. What do I mean then when I say blackness is the loss of or the death of architecture? I think of blackness not just as the identitarian uh, thing, you know, not just as the how certain bodies appear, which veers closely and coincides closely with colonial imaginations of identity. Right. I'm not just thinking of blackness as a form of capture, as a passenger concept on this, uh, you know, in the paradigm of whiteness, constantly at odds, constantly seeking diversity, uh, constantly seeking um, a, a space at the table, right? Constantly prosthetic, but constantly seeking to be a real boy like Pinocchio, you know, I'm not speaking about that blackness. I'm speaking about a different blackness. I call that a small B blackness, right? It's ungrammatical. It's fugitive. It's geological. It's uh, it's how things become. Uh, you know, Yoruba people might call it ashe, right? It's the f- ongoing flowing disruption of any claims to stability, right? It's how things lose their edges. It's loss, right? It's the maternal matrix spill. It's spillage. And this blackness I speak of as spillage is constantly haunting every claims to every claim to, to stability. It's constantly pulling at the threads so that we might become something different. It denies us any claim to eternity. It says. Here's where you fall down, right? I think in such a time we're in, the materials of our ritualizing flatness have amassed or come together in such a way that it's now almost inescapable to push the dust under the carpet. Like the dust under the carpet is now a a mountain. And so there's no place to hide now. So... You know, we're we're witnessing, witnessing, you know, this ongoing decay. It's like decay on steroids. And we're going to experience that not just in the loss of ecological integrity, not just in the loss of trust in governance. We're in such a time where trust in democratic institutions is at an all-time low. We're going to witness that not just in that institutional decadence, not just in what we have pathologized as corruption. Uh, We're also going to witness how we are showing up experientially, right? I think we're not just in a global pandemic of viruses. I think we're also in in a pandemic of depression, of despair. And this despair will push us to do things. It will push us to, to ask new questions, to push us to the streets. It would enhance our 
it will burden our voices with a, a different pathos. And we would wonder, isn't there something more? So this is where your question comes in. After offering that framework, that scaffolding, conceptual scaffolding, that as white stability fades, we will need a politics that does more than just, you know, help people get back into productive cycles. We will need something like a midwifing. We will need to catch people where they fall. This is what I call making sanctuary. You know, even white people, you know, uh, I often say whiteness is not white people. Whiteness also captured white people, right? But even the hallways of privilege will seem emptier and hollower and hollower. And it would seem like, what's there to this after all? So whiteness isn't even stable itself. Whiteness is like an amoeba. It's organic, it's spilling, and it's also becoming something else, right? It's not a property. White identified people don't own whiteness, right? Whiteness is an arrangement, and it's an arrangement that can change. It's an arrangement that can also migrate and travel, right? Like a murmuration. So as that happens, as cracks emerge, as monsters sprout through flat surfaces and in sterilized places, as the enemy creeps up within, so to speak, as the wilds show up in our living rooms. We would need something more than chasing them away. We would not need psychotherapy, I think. We would need ab therapy. And for me, ab therapy, just my construction, is away from therapy. Right? <laughs> I'm not speaking about healing or justice. And those are specific concerns. I cannot universalize or generalize the need for that. But I think collectively, we might need something that looks like walking away from the couch, we might need something more than healing. We might need a collective communitas, you know, an enterprise, uh, an assemblage that allows people to lean into these spaces of rupture that supports people as they go through this. And this is what I call making sanctuary. La vie vient n'est qu'approcher sous clepsonneur, même si la terre c'est pas votre malheur. La vie vient n'est qu'approcher sous clepsonneur, même si la terre c'est pas votre malheur. La jeune pas fait bon, l'empoche malheur, nous fait pour nous vivre sous la terre bénie. La jeune pas fait bon, l'empoche malheur, nous fait pour nous vivre. I would now like to turn our conversation to your recent essay, Black Lives Matter, But to Whom? We Need a Politics of Exile in a Time of Troubling Stuckness. And in the essay, you write, quote, I'm writing to say that while Black Lives Matter deploys an identitarian approach to make its demands and claims about Black experience legible to the public, it inadvertently contributes to the ongoing manufacturing of the Black subject, an imprint of white logic. Its method of intersectionality, an iteration of what seems popular beyond a studied and careful appreciation of Kimberly Crenshaw's more nuanced thesis, contributes to the discretization of bodies as fully articulable subjects of meeting. End quote. I would love to hear more about this trap of identity and the creation of subjects. Yes, it's like a full circle thing we're doing here. We're coming right back to the idea of the individual. 
right? I think I would never, ever forget the words of Professor Marisol de la Cadena in conversation, conspiratorial conversation with me, when she told me that, Bayo, I think that the vessel of capture wasn't just a slave ship. It was the concept of the human, right? Bodies were imported into the growing enterprise of the human, the human or the Anthropocene, right? Bodies were imported into it as prosthetic contributors to the emergence of the Anthropocene, right? So black bodies were placed on a spectrum, one might argue. The argue the spectrum was not quite human, less than human, right? Our and I use our with some hesitation here, but our approach, approach of the minoritarian has been to aspire to leave behind the prosthetics of being a minority and arrive summarily at the halls of power to leave the hallways and enter the room, so to speak, to stop standing at the gates and to gain entrance into the city. Right. And the strategy for that has been to adopt the same ontological tools of the city, which is identity. Modernity's strategy for creating individuals is to settle them into suburban identities, <laughs> right? To stabilize them, you know, to say, I will cut off the wilds like a Procrustean bed, you know, and hells to the thief or to the visitor, or to the traveler at night. I will cut off your limbs, I will cut off your tendrils, and I will, with exacting precision, I will place you within a room. And this is where you will have power. This is how you will sing. This is how you will thrive. But you must be identified. You must be intelligible. You must be legible. You must be surveilled. You must be useful to my purposes. And so blackness, this big B blackness has been this yearning to be seen, to be recognized, right? To have a seat at the table, to speak truth to power, right? To be visible. With visibility, however, comes the trap of being useful. And with the trap of being useful comes incarceration. Because if you're surveilled, if you're legible to, say, the nation state, then you're available, then you're numbered, and then I can incarcerate you. So Black excellence is this narrative, this yearning, this presumption that the way to go, the way for Blackness to go is from the shores of violent capture to migrate from the edges to the center of the city, from the borderlands to the hinterland of capture, you know, and to occupy power there, right? to be more visible, to be seen, to be celebrated, to rise to fame, to have a private jet, to do all of that. It's a world-building process. In this way, blackness is a form of white capture. Now, this is not to say this is bad or this is evil. You know, I don't think in those terms. But this is to say that if Blackness is comorbid with the Anthropocene, are there other ways to frame Blackness, you know, this minoritarian capture that might allow us to go in different directions other than the one we're all headed to right now? Is there a way to think of the minority that isn't, this ticket, this one-way highway to this city set upon a hill, right? Is there a way to think about all of that without capitulating to modernity's algorithms of capture? So that's what I'm saying here. We need other ways to spill. We need other ways, perhaps, and this is why I use subterranean because it's quite difficult for surveillance cameras to pick what is beneath the ground, right? So we need beneath the ground politics, a supplementary politics, if you will, 
which is not a dismissal or a pathologization of identity politics, but a way of holding different questions and different energies and orientations, or rather disorientations, as we come up against a time where, in which the crisis, the crisis of loss is becoming escalated. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear more about the concept of Black exile and its relation to the Afro scene and what points of our current era gesture towards different ways of being. Right. When something flashes up, when something flares up and burns through the algorithms of continuity, going to the shopping mall, going to city hall, seeking recognition, when something bursts through that, the landscape that is made visible through that new parallaxed vision is the Afro scene. It's not after the Anthropocene. It's not a replacement concept. It's not a substitute for the Anthropocene. It is a stowaway concept, right? The Afro scene lives within capture. And this story of capture here is the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene is capture. The Afro scene is the sidling logic, the logic that sidles, the non-legible logic that sidles the materials of capture, right? It's issue, traveling with the slaves across the Atlantic, the trickster traveling with the slaves across the Atlantic. That's what the Afro scene is. And what it encourages is a different posture altogether. It's to listen. It's to a world that is wilder than the materials of the Anthropocene might invite us to notice, to appreciate. It is thoughts traveling with bodies melting into each other. It is ancestors, you know, living and breathing. It is spirits with three heads, you know, skating the surfaces of the Atlantic Ocean. It is all these things that live with us and speak with us and dream with us that we don't know how to voice or language. So the Afrocene becomes this carnivalesque, festive, radically hospitable concept that invites experimentation with embodiment. Beyond just the binary of healing versus injury, victim versus perpetrator, justice versus injustice, black versus white, here versus there. It skirts the lines. It straddles the binary. It exists in the cracks between the binary. Right. So Black Exile becomes this performance of queer relationalities. Instead of speaking to my senator, and I'm not diminishing speaking to one's senators or legislators, but instead of just speaking to my senator, I might as well communicate with furniture. I might as well find ways to trace, you know, connections that my body is already practicing with ancestral becomings. I might as well lose my way and in becoming lost, be alive to other spaces of power, right? Black exile is the invitation to occupy the monster, right? And I remember in that essay, I stay with this idea of occupying the monster, you know, um, exploring the story of Badejo, um, the Nigerian um, actor who inhabited the body of the xenomorph in Willie Scott's Alien in the 70s, right? He entered the monster. He became the monster. And it's a rich story. I invite anyone to, anyone who's, who doesn't know Badejo to, ex, to explore his story. I think Badejo becomes a figure for Black exile, uh, invitation to experiment with embodiment, just as issue is an invitation to experiment with embodiment, is a disappointment um, of those enlightenment precepts, concepts about politics, being either utilitarian, industrial, or natural, or any of those things. That it's not Lockean or Hobbesian, that politics is premised on a singular notion of nature, can be a form of a trap that what we want to do right now is experiment with new nature culture 
and render them more resilient as we perform with them. Mm. <laughs> oh gosh. I'm just sitting in the complexity and the beauty and the expansion of it all. And there's so much in the article, Black Lives Matter, but to whom we need a politics of exile in a time of troubling stuckness. And I want to read another quote because there's so much in here. And you write, quote, the irony of attempting to create safe zones to nullify the offending body and to postpone fascism indefinitely is that it is often in the effort to guarantee this immunity to the corrupting influences of the folks across the aisle that we become the very thing we resist, end quote. Yeah, I'm thinking back to a number of moments in our conversation on parenting, and I'm wondering how the idea of nurturing plays into embracing the dangers as well. We cannot keep our children or ourselves or our loved ones from the dangers of the world, but perhaps we can give them and ourselves the space and care that will allow us to embrace the dangers in a way that stimulate growth. I wonder how might we come to see danger and the quote unsafe as places for challenge and expansion. Yeah, just the idea of making home with discomfort. Right. We don't know how to think forward or anticipate these things because they're, the world's emergent. We will often need to build walls. I'm not against walls. Um, we will need walls. We will need, let me just hyperfixate on the, on the notion of walls for a moment and say maybe we might even build barbed wire fences with guns, <laughs> right? Who, who knows, right? What are the conditions that would make those kinds of structures not just possible, but required. Right? You could imagine a sci-fi scenario um, of zombies, a zombie apocalypse, right? I guess if we're in such a scenario, most of us would be behind those fences and we'll do our best to justify the need to gun down all the zombies that are beleaguering and haunting our gates. But then there are moments when something crosses, something transversal, something molecular, and it upends the structures and the positions that we've adopted, and it shifts things ever so slightly so that we are suddenly at odds with our safety. We're suddenly at odds with our permanence. We're suddenly at odds with the very arrangement that seemed to ensure our survival or survivability, right? And then someone asks a question. And the question is, what if we let the zombies bite us? <laughs> maybe, maybe the zombies biting isn't so bad. I don't know if anyone has explored. No, I think someone did. I think a cartoon, I can't remember the name now, explore the idea of, okay, maybe what if we stopped and let these zombies actually bite us? And it led to, you know, quite fascinating story concepts and narratives, right? There's one going on now called The Last of Us, right? And it's a zombie flick, probably the most intelligent take on the zombie. Of course, the most intelligent take on a zombie for me would somehow bring in its African roots and that cosmology. Maybe the zombie as fugitivity from imperialism. That take haunts me, the last of us, this fungal infection that takes over the human and in so doing creates art. You know, I think that what we want to do is, I often think of it as infection, is to allow ourselves to to explore the duplicity of safety. And I'm not sure, I don't know if you know this story of um, uh, an extinction event that happened in our guts. This is what the researchers exploring this called it, called it an extinction event. They noticed that in paleofeces, that is feces 
that has lasted a thousand years and is available for scrutiny, right? These archaeological digs, they notice dried up feces with remnants of, you know, microbial communities. And they study the diversity of this of these communities, microbial communities, and notice that it differs significantly with our own microbial communities now, our gut microbes, right? One might say, and I think they do make this point, that paleofeces that they studied had diversity. We, we don't have as many microbes as they did a thousand years ago, for instance. My question has always been, when I after reading that, that, what does that allow us to notice? What has this loss of microbial diversity taken away from us? These researchers suppose that in losing the diversity, we, become, we became a microbial monolith, you know, an interspecies defined by a monolith. How has this loss shaped our experience, shaped our activisms, shaped our politics, shaped our visions and our possibility for imagination? How is this effectively significant, right? But to gain new microbes is to risk exposure. To see the world differently is to take risky steps outside of our walls and ramparts. To let ourselves get beaten by zombies is to risk entertaining one, at least just one, <laughs> right? And I know that's a horrible prospect because Hollywood has so bastardized the image of the zombie that no one would be attracted to the idea. I wouldn't be attracted to the idea myself. But maybe the things that we recoil from have a promise to them, right? And that's the irony of safety. The very thing we, we suppose we're keeping without is exactly performed within in our very efforts to keep the enemy without. Think of all the ways climate justice or our responses to climate matters, you know, performs itself as a recoiling from death to come, right? We can see death down the line. And so we go round in circles. We go round and round in circles. Anything to stop ourselves from marching forward. But in performing our bodies that way, we kind of secrete death so that right, our tautological economies and politics seems to be the very exemplification of death, animated death, right? We're trying to avoid it, but we recreate it in, in, in avoiding it. So I think we've crossed some kind of material inflection point where safety is not producing the phenomena that we expected it to. Safety is coddling us and safety is banishing the visitors, the ontological guests that travel and take some, of, some parts of our bodies with them. Safety is pushing them away. Our bodyguards are taking away the nourishment that we need to become different. So we need to risk. We need a politics of risk and play. And this is not something new. I mean, I think some researchers noticed that children in favelas and in slum were less likely to get ill from COVID than those well-protected children in the cities. Mm -hmm. There's so much more to ask and explore together, but I will begin to close with this last inquiry. It's about creating new worlds, which I think is a good way to close for today. And in Welcome to the Wandering, Winding Way of the Wound for Science and Non-Duality, you discuss the idea that when we get into a utopian state, we forget about the circumstances that brought us there and we begin the cycles again. I'm wondering, how might we create new worlds that emphasize constant shifting and growing rather than seeking a stabilizing or stuck idea of perfection. And I'm also wondering how that ties into tangibly engaging with disruption. And maybe you could offer some places where you've offered disruption. I think utopia is 
a political imaginary secreted by the affordances of modern stability. Um, we're able to think that way in terms of finality, in terms of heaven, speculatively modern concepts have lived for, for longer than what we now call mod modernity, right? Strands of which still animate our discourses and conversations about change and social transformation. And yet there's something, there's something troubling about utopian imaginations. I'm sure many scholars work with utopia as a virtuality, as a possibility, right? At least to the extent that it reveals something about us and our own operations and our own assumptions, right? What's troubling for me about it is the hidden curriculum of finality that innervates its operations, right? It's like we've arrived. Here's, there's no movement from here. So your question about, you know, how do we keep building and not assume finality? I think we will always risk stability. To be embodied in the way that we are, I do not know how to think outside of plateaus, right? Emergence is not just eternal flow. Emergence is also the creation of stabilities, right? We will need stabilities. We will need names. I mean, today's revolution is tomorrow's industry. So there, there isn't, I don't know that there is, that there is a way to live in flow. To live in itself is to presume stability of some kind, right? Bodies are not switch on, switch off things. We, we would need to eat. We would need to ritualize eating. We would need to name ourselves. And we would then need to ritualize and build traditions around that. And we would need to sustain those traditions. Some of us will be enlisted and deployed to the gates that we eventually build around our revolutionary concepts. And then by and by, sooner than later, I guess, what those stabilities produce would be ironic desires for rupture. Cracks will emerge in the very attempt to create stability, such as the nature of emergence, I might say. We will in the very attempt to build home, find the wilds we exclude springing in the gardens of our new homes. And then some wonderful person, maybe a descendant of Ayana, would have a conversation with a descendant of Bio in the year 3000. And then they would have a conversation about revolutions. And maybe whatever post-activism is called then might re-emerge as a consideration of how we lose our way and do something different. And I think my work is to do this for now, is to settle with disruption. My work is highly theoretical, but it is not exclusively theoretical do a lot of work thinking and reading around these concepts and then invite inquiry. That has been the majority of my work. And then leading organizations, building alliances around the world to not just explore with me, but to see if there is some pragmatism here. I mean by pragmatism or pragmatic politics here. By politics, it has to be practiced in some way. So when I name post-activism as an instigation of a new politics, I, I am speaking about the very exciting prospect of inviting people around the world to create around this, to join others in thinking through and practicing through these ideas. If you ask me what, how I see this playing out more intimately, it's, again, in my relationship with my son, my children, what you might poetically call ultimate disruptors. My children invite, especially my son, invites me to let go of the usual, the expected, and invite me to build around him, with him, to settle into the field of his intensity and to stay there, stay with the trouble of that.
that is my most intimate post-activism. That is my most intimate calling. Yes. And I think that's how new worlds emerge. Oh, thank you, Bio, for sharing the theoretical to the personal. And I'm definitely wandering into the image of our descendants in year 3000 talking about revolution. <laughs> I see it. I definitely can imagine that right. really. Um, I don't know. Clearly, I'm imagining where they are and what the world looks like at that point. But yep. yeah, I just appreciate you and the poetics that you bring and wrestling with these concepts that so many people try to keep tidy and easily digestible. And I'm so tired of that. And I don't trust that. And I'm grateful for all that it is that you must have to put into all of this. Yeah, it is like a murmuration, actually. I've been watching the birds lately, and that's what I feel <laughs> like this conversation was. Thank you, Bio. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ayanna. It's wonderful speaking with you. Thank you for listening to this episode Before the Wild. The music you heard today is by Julio Quintu, Janavi Veronica, and Leila McCullough. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Julia Jackson, Jackson Krump, Evan Tenenbaum, and Jose Alejandro Rivera. <laughs>